welcome to Sticky Tape, Rap's new podcast. We're known for challenging our clients and urging them to escape the status quo and do things a bit differently. We've got loads of amazing guests lined up to help you come up with oodles of ideas, fresh thinking and actions to inspire you in your own business. I'm JC Lamerton and I'm joined today by two very special guests. Steve Freer and Val Vavroche founded Tempest Novo in 2014. Together, they clock up 60 years experience working with offenders at prisons up and down the country. They operate within prisons to identify offenders committed to transforming their lives. And on their release, these prisoners continue to work with Tempest Novo to get back into employment. At the same time, they get hands-on mentoring and support for at least a year. Their president is the former cabinet minister and ex-offender, Jonathan Aiken, and they work with a growing number of employers in and around Yorkshire who share the same vision and are willing to get give ex-offenders a second chance. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks for, for making it over here. Um, so tell us then, I've been introduced the business just a little bit, but you tell, tell us about it. Okay, so Tempest Novo was born, like you said, off the back of 60 years collectively. Val and I working in, in prisons. Um, but I guess the trigger, the trigger point really was we got a governor in place at Leeds Prison in about 2010 or more. Yeah. yeah. A guy called Paul Baker. And Paul came in with a very different approach, more corporate in his thinking, visionary, risk taker, you know, risk taker in the world of crime, my goodness. <laughs> not, not often you see that. Paul were very unique. But, but not only in his ideas and his vision, but his leadership. I don't think I've witnessed leadership like it in prison service before or after. And I was at the time doing some work in what we call a multi-agency team. So there was police. I was the prison's link, probation, drug support, accommodation, the usual things that repeat offenders have issues with. But that's all, nowhere to live, for example. Mm. No family, debt issues, um, drug, drugs or drink problems. So we were, t we were targeting the most prolific offenders, which is that group, um, engaging with them whilst in custody and trying to change the mindset that there was actually a better life for them because most of them don't actually believe that there is. Mm. And it was fascinating to me because I'd become institutionalised in the prison as most people do working in that environment, similar to forces or police. And then I've been exposed to this different way of dealing with offenders. At that time, I wouldn't even call them by the first name, you know, such as the sort of the way that you're taught and, and what's ingrained in you to, to, to instill discipline and order in a difficult environment. And um, I worked doing that, I was doing that work when Paul arrived. And he obviously saw that we were doing a good job as a team. He wanted to do things differently. And he decided he wanted Leeds to become a community prison. And in that, I mean, offering opportunities for guys to go out to work, placements in the community. Very, very different for a cat being in a city prison like Leeds. And he, he plucked me from nowhere to head up that work. That straight away made me think, wow. There's a really amazing governor and he's, and that really we're a couple of grades above what, what I was. Yeah, I was going to say, because normally that would have been a governor's role. 
All right. And surprisingly, even I was very surprised when, it, when they chose Steve. And that's that. I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it really, I'll tell you what, it, it, it upset a few people. It did. And that, <laughs> that, that brings in another part of the journey, actually, because some of the obstacles I faced doing that work were so huge, difficult, stressful. But that stood me in a good stead for them when, when I come on to it, when we set up Temper Snowbook. And um, so I did this work for Paul where I was going out talking to businesses saying, we've got some great workers in prison and with, an, with the chance it could turn them round. It's a win-win really, because you, you're obviously reducing crime, reducing victims. And these guys then hopefully are going on to pay back into the system through national insurance and taxes. And to my surprise, the, the, the businesses I spoke to were up for it. It took a bit of persuading initially, but once you get one involved, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like mm -hmm. there's a little video in the, the lone man that gets up on a hillside dancing, and there's hundreds of people sat around looking at him as if he's crazy. And then somebody else gets up, and before you know it, they're all up, you know, it's a bit of a movement. Yeah. And it were a similar thing with giving ex-offenders jobs. As long as you got the right people in who had a good work ethic and attitude, and, and I knew there were, were there were many of them. So we did that for a year on a small scale. And leads, not just through my work, but through what Val were doing in his IT uh, workshop and other great departments. Leeds Prison was sort of put on the map as a really forward-thinking place to be. Not holiday camp, but just smart justice, really. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of sending people out the same as they came in and expecting different results, doing something different with them. So Throughout that year, Val, as I said, was in charge of the IT um, workshop. And I, I, I sort of, there were two reasons I were attracted to, to Val to help me with this work. And that one was he was naturally interested in wanting to do different and help people. And two, I needed some support for marketing, literature, etc. And then I'll let you tell him. Yeah. So, like I said, Paul Baker being the different guy that he was. So there were myself and a guy called Vince who ran this shop, and it was to teach Microsoft to prisoners. Oh. And uh, it, and we run it really strictly. So if anybody messes about, that I come up like scruff at neck and say, right, that's it, you're finished in here. You're not messing about in this workshop. And lads love that. So they get they got down and got on with the work. And if anybody messed about, lads would come to me and say, Do you know that nil that boss is a, is a waste of time? We need to get rid of him. He's just messing about all the time. So that's the sort of atmosphere that we create. Self pleased. Yeah. So uh, Paul Baker said to us, he came into us and he says, I used to do a lot of work for him, like PowerPoint presentations and music and all sorts of that stuff like that we used to do. And he says to us, um, we said to him about turning this into a business, and he says, just do it. He says, crack on, wait, he says, if you need any help, if you get any obstacles, come and see me. So he basically just gave us carte blanche to, to turn this, which was unheard of in the prison service. So we actually turned it into a business, and, and within the first year, we, we turned over something like 15 grand, which was like unbelievable. And we were, in the second year, we're probably looking to maybe times that by four. Most of that through contacts that I'm not you. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, so Steve were bringing businesses into my workshop. Uh -huh. And I'd sort of do the nice talk with them and take them round into the house lads, you know, and, and they loved all that because they're in a, a Victorian, a, a prison built in the Victorian times. 
you know, and, it, and we actually hung people there. The point I were making is that <clears throat> I needed business people to see a really orderly workshop in the yeah. prison environment. Yeah. Because of, so there are workshops where lads, you walk in, they'll be sat with their feet up. Yeah. Back in the day. Uh, or sat bone idle. Yeah. And it's not, but I knew well shop, as he said, were run really well. And I needed business people to see that. They were going to give them an opportunity. And then Val would pull me and say, what, you, what is it you're doing then? And I'd tell him. And, and he got interested in it. And then in my downtime, I became really, really in, interested in desistance, rehabilitation. Um, what were the sort of pillars of that? What could what could be done to make it work better? And I started doing tons of research, reading loads of reports. And within the MOJ, there's always been lots of training and education. So we send people out with all these little certificates, but actually what happens to them beyond that? And even in that multi-agency thing that I mentioned earlier, team, it, the, the remit was reduce reoffending. That was the government remit, reduce reoffending. And now we're thinking, surely I want to stop offending, not reduce it. So what's missing? So I went and I did tons and tons of research. And everything, every time it came up, with there were a big gap for employment. And it was obvious why, because there was such a stigma. Nobody were prepared to tackle it. Everybody just accepted, if you've got a conviction, you don't get a job. Okay, move on. Whilst doing that research, I came across our now president and great friend, actually, Jonathan Aitken, who wrote a report called Locked Up Potential, which came out of the centre think tank in London called the Centre for Social Justice, about 2009. And when I looked at the people that had contributed to this, <clears throat> what I thought were an incredible piece of work, there were ex-governors from the public sector, ex-governors from the private sector, ex-life prisoners, Jonathan as a former minister and former offender. And I thought, well, it's obvious this is going to be an incredible report. Mm -hmm. Just think of the amount of knowledge and experience that's gone into this, mm -hmm. both sides of the <coughs> wall or door. <coughs> so I remember saying to Val, have a read of this, it'll blow you away. And at that time, with no real plans about Tempest no. Harbour, we were just bouncing stuff off, us, off each other. And then after a year of doing that work for Paul, really successfully, but with some, like I well says, huge obstacles, and I mean huge. Um, the, I think, look, because Paul was the type of guy who he'd just say, like Paul said, I like that idea, do it. But obviously this process and there's unions yeah. and all sorts involved in prison. They weren't that bothered about that, though. So <laughs> it got to the point after me doing that business development role for a year, working sort of direct to him, where he couldn't sustain it. <clears throat> there was a thing that, ironically, there were a, a programme came in by Chris Grayling, uh, known as Bailey Grayling. Yeah. And it was called Fair and Sustainable. They should have called it unfair and unsustainable <laughs> because what he did, he cut the staff by a third yeah. nationally right. and it was tantamount to suicide. Yeah. Um, and sadly, we witnessed the latter years of that working in it. Yeah. But um, fair and sustainable was a bit of a turning point, really, because that year that I'd done with Paul and then he said, look, I can't. 
you can't sustain you doing business development. I need you back in the prison yeah. on the landings, if you like, as a senior officer. And I went to that and I said, with my tail between my legs a bit, <laughs> feeling battered and bruised. I'd found my calling, if I'm honest. I knew that's what I wanted to do in life, help other people. I'd seen guys, I'd worked with them from risk assessment in the prison to physically taking them for interview, to going and congratulating them for doing well at work and for sharing in their journey. And it was just such a powerful thing. I thought this has got to be, not only for me personally, but for, for society, this has got to be the thing to do. You know, if, imagine if out of, at that time, 80,000 prisoners and 250,000 people supervised by probation, just 1% of those took you up on this opportunity. What an impact we could have. <laughs> so I went to Val, and as, as I said, and I said, oh, I'm back in the prison. That's from next week. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and went, hey, hey you what? I says, yeah, I'm back in prison. He says, well, all the good work you've done and the way the prison's image has been turned around, in part <clears throat> because of what you've done. I said, I know, but you know what it's like, man? Bureaucracy, process, etc. staff cuts. And he said, no, no, he says, you need to keep doing this work. He says, you're too good at it not to. And I thought, bloody hell, that's a bit profound. <laughs> I says, oh, I says, what do you mean? I says, I've just told you the governor wants me back in the prison. He says, I don't care. He says, you need to carry on doing it somehow, and I'll help you. We'll find a way. And that would start, really. That would it, really, I suppose. The tempest snowball becoming even a seed of an idea. <clears throat> I always knew from the two years previously under the multi agency and the business development roles that Mark could be done, but I never quite knew how. And it would come back conversation with Albert Sparks that. Actually, maybe we could set something up ourselves. Mm. That then ratcheted up the obstacles yeah. significantly <laughs> more, believe it or not. So you're working in, you're working in a, um, a rehabilitation environment, but you're also working in a very secure environment. And it took, for us to move forward with the idea, it took for Val and I to do things a bit differently. So we were interviewing prisoners on a lunchtime, getting them out of the cells, so staff were very suspicious, even though we'd been there 25 years, unblemished. Well, I think mine were unblemished. I don't <laughs> unblemished career. Um, you're still aware that you're operating in this high-risk environment where staff will be suspicious. Mm. And then, like, when you're handing them a business card, which we did, could have been drugs. So that's the reality of a prison. Yeah. yeah, you're not allowed, really, you're not allowed to keep in touch with prisoners once they're released. Yeah. And it, obviously, for us to get them into work, we had to keep in touch with them. Mm -hmm. So what we what we put in place was we said to them to Paul Baker because we we'd had staff putting what they call SIRs in about us, security information reports, sort of mm -hmm. saying, Oh, these two are up to no good, there's something going off here. So what we did, we gave all the names of the lads that we were contacting to the security department, said to them, just for your information, so that you know, yeah. we'll be getting in touch with John Smith and Fred Blocks and this yeah. person, and it's to see about getting them a job. And that sort of lasted for a few know, weeks, and then somebody else had come back to number one hundred and complain. They're still up to no good, I've seen them, they've been doing a survey on sealing, they're, you know, they're doing this, they're doing that. So in the end, they, Paul Baker sort of had to sort of... We got called up several times. Yeah, a few times, warned and what are you doing, social yeah, media, yeah. Steve, what social media, man? Mm -hmm. um, and it just was what you're doing. One morning I went into work 
I were on seaweed and I was just getting myself familiar with what had been happening the night before. I'm ready for onslaught, which is pretty much what it was. Like that, back in the, the latter days of our service, it was just like a tsunami of problems that you couldn't cope with mm-hmm. in, in prison. And I got called to the governor's office, or the deputy governor then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And she said, Steve, she says, obviously, we've spoke to you now a few times about how difficult it is for us to maintain you guys setting up this charity whilst you're still working for us. Um, so I've spoke to the governor at Wheelston Prison, which is Weatherby, and you start there tomorrow. And so to me, I'm thinking, hmm. start there tomorrow. <laughs> so then I'm, of course, then you've got a battle. When anybody comes into a prison from an existing establishment, hmm. you go in with a black cloud over your head. Um, as it turns out, I didn't want to leave and they didn't want me to leave when it got to end. And I was there about six months while well, they formally investigated us. And Val were told not to have any contact with me, blah, 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 six months. Mm-hmm. Now, initially, obviously, I was a bit hurt by that and worried and stressed because obviously you don't know if you can have a job to go back to. Mm-hmm. If they want to really um, make things difficult, if the, if the person that's at the head of that report, um, investigation wants to, wants not a very good outcome, then that can, that can happen. Anyway, fair play, it was due process. I found out from one of the employers who actually contacted Paul Baker and said how disgusted he was with what happened. But he didn't know the prison uh, in the yeah, house. Yeah. He would just yeah. see me as a human being that bad, badly done by. Mm-hmm. And he rung me up, he says, if it's any consolation, Steve, he says, uh, I've spoken to Paul Baker and he doesn't want a bad outcome from this. Which did help, I must be honest. Yeah. So about maybe three months into it, six months later yeah. at Wheelstone. Yeah. And obviously Val were panicking in workshop because <laughs> I did the work. The lads themselves were so excited about what yeah, we were doing. Well, they were filling our memory on computers well, with all our work. Were designed, well, what had happened? What had designed logos? I'd got them created spreadsheets to, to gather all this information about prisoners. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I've got to get rid of all that out of this system. <laughs> so what I did, really naughtily, I took a memory stick, which weren't allowed in prisons, downloaded it all my stuff onto a memory stick and got it out of, out of prison. I mean, if I got caught with that, I think there's, yeah. a, there's a great but, sort of um, story behind it. You've got to be risk takers in life if you're going to move anything forward. Well, it's as simple as that. Yeah. No risk, no progress. Those four words, so powerful, they mean a hell of a lot, and it's so true. Calculated risks, obviously. And that was very difficult in the prison environment, Val and I did it. Mm. And we did it because we knew that the problem right. that we were trying to solve exactly. were bigger than, it were a societal problem that were bigger than any individual who felt they wanted to step in our way. It's very interesting that, that the whole prison system, the way it set up, the rigidity of it then, could have scuppered it if you hadn't have been quite yeah. so risk-taking. Oh, and then, and that kind of ties in with, I presume, your careers before Paul came, because, Building you know, resilience. like you were saying, there was a bit of, yeah, but there was, although you'd started thinking in your multi-agency group, there's something else that can be done. Presumably before that, you were quite institutionalised yes. into that way of thinking Definitely. as well. And yeah, there's this revolving door of prisoners and that's just the way it is. Yeah. And we just deal with them as they come in and Absolutely. as they go out, 
they're beyond our scope. So Absolutely. it's interesting what that spark was and that that didn't come at the beginning of your careers. That no. came, you know, when you had quite mature careers. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you my story just, just briefly. Mm. So, after, so I, I was a mental health engineer for the coal board, so I worked down the coal mines. So my career was mapped out for me. I thought, that's me for life. I'm going to be, you know, working in pits. And I've got a fantastic job. Margaret Thatcher came along, shut the pits, so I ended up joining the prison service. I didn't, you know, it's not something I wanted to join. I just ended up, by default, joining. Mm. So after about three or four years of working, doing the landings and going along and barking orders and shouting, you know, get behind your doors, unlocking, locking. I thought, is this it? I thought, is this all I'm going to be doing for the rest of my bloody life? I thought, surely to God there's something. And I thought to myself, I thought, do you know what? All these lads in this prison, because I used to feel a bit sorry for them, because the, the old lads who I had grown up with, yeah. type thing. I'm a, from a council estate, you know. And I thought, it's really quite sad, this. And I thought, do you know what? If I could stop one person coming back to prison by some action of mine, or something I said to him, or some advice I give him, I thought, that'll be job done. I thought, and that, that's all I need to do, really. And now, obviously, me and Steve together have done that for 620 people. I was going to ask you how many people yeah, you've worked with now. Yeah, we're up to 620, so it's staggering, you know. What we found from early days, and it makes you even more determined to do this work, is it's crazy that it's not so commonly known, actually, because I think there'd be a different narrative around prisons. Somewhere in the region of 50 or 60% of people in and out of prison come from poverty extreme poverty. They've never known what's right and wrong. Most of them haven't known who the dad is. I think a quarter of them go through a care system. And yet, as a society, we keep them down. If you'd have been born into that unfortunate start in life, where would you have been? Mm -hmm. Same place. And I, when we met these lads in the early days when we were doing interviews, <clears throat> they'd come in, Possibly a little bit nervous because they knew we were at prison staff because our offices were donated to us by a governor. Well, that's another thing we did actually. The office space we moved in. that I'd been working in that multi-agency approach. That because that again that were another one of these things where we'll fund it for a year and if it's working we'll put money. And they did it. That's typical government. But the office space was still there, and I says to Val, I said, get, get in them offices where I want. <laughs> when he retired, I, just, I said, and in a month's time, we'll put a name plate on. Well, in three months' time, the lab has registered as being there for the last 10 years. Yeah. And that's pretty much what's happened. We're still there. So what we did, <laughs> because we were giving such a good service and now we were marketing it and getting some really powerful people around us, like Jonathan Aiken and others, you know, the, those in the middle sort of just went with the flow and then thought, oh, actually, it's good what they're doing, let's support it. Mm. So that's what happened. But uh, what will point I'm making? I don't know. About their backgrounds. Oh, and sorry. Yes. Yeah, so this is so, so important because who on earth doesn't want to see someone lifted out of the gutter and into a better place? I know they've caused victims, but the alternative is they're going to cause even more. So why not actually give them a chance? So, there, as I said, there's less victims, there's less crime, more prosperous communities because they're going to work now. They're also role models for their children and grandchildren. I've got a picture that I've just posted out on LinkedIn. And it's of a guy called Simon Wallage, and he won't let me saying it in public because he's so grateful. 
for this life-changing opportunity that we gave him. Val and I were locking him up in the 90s. And in 2015, I think it was, he approached me on the sea wing. And he said, Mr. Fear, I've heard you setting up a charity helping lads get into work. I said, we are, we're trying. He says, oh, I'd like to be part of that. I says, I'd like you to be. I knew he'd be a great worker in prison when he'd been in. He were on that, that cycle where no job, no money, sell drugs, get caught, prison, no job, no money, sell drugs. He got into the cycle of that. But he was still bringing up a family at the same time, but just not with the same morals and ethics that he wanted. So I said to him, where's my card, Simon? When you get out, give me a ring. Six, seven, eight, nine months went by. My phone rang at Christmas. I'll never forget, I was sitting in the kitchen at home. Sophia, it's Simon Wallace. Oh, I says, fantastic. I says, I'm so pleased you've run. Oh, I says, I'm on home leave. He says, I've got another couple of months to do. He says, but I just wondered, could I come in and get assessed while I'm on home leave? Right. So I went, well done. That's showing real motivation and commitment. So we did, we got him in. And then the mo a month later, we actually got him a job. Because how we work is, they don't go to be applicants amongst hundreds of others because of the story and the way that we involve the companies in the process. They want them, they want them in, they want to give them a chance. So 98% of those that we've taken, because we physically taken to interview, have been given the job because the companies want to do greater good for their community and they see this as a fantastic way. So Simon, <coughs> six years on is it now? Yeah. Um, did a little video for us last week, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. We haven't seen it yet. But he always said, guys, I can't ever put into words how you changed my life for anything. Anything you want me to do, I'll do. Anyway, we didn't really pull on it initially, did we? No. But just recently, he's done this short video for us and and a, and a picture he sent me of him with his grandkids. And you just think, wow, have I been a part of that? You know, just... I know it's a team effort. We've got amazing staff around us that make this happen on a daily basis now. You can't not recognise that. There's also amazing people who want to help from other quarters, such as maybe his probation officer who was supporting the company that gave him a chance. It's not, you know, this isn't just Tempers Noble. This is lots of people mm -hmm. that are contributing to him getting a life-changing opportunity. It's just that we're the conduit to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And that's always been missing. There's always been good on inside the prisons and good on out, but nothing to join it together properly and make it sustainable. If I just tell you a story about a guy, just, just to sort of get a flavour of the type of people that we have. Mm -hmm. So a guy called Paul, who, who we, we, when we interviewed him, we, we asked him three questions. So, right, why did, how and why did you first get into crime? Why do you want to come away from that life? And why should Tempest Noble help you? So Paul starts his story, and this is Paul's words, and he said, well, to be honest, Paul, he says, and I've, again, me and Steve have been locking him up for 25, 26 years, so we've known him quite well, uh, but we never knew this about him. He says, when I was born, he says, he says, I was born, my mum was a prostitute. He says, so I didn't even, he says, I've got loads of dads. He says, I don't, I don't know who my dad is, even to this day. I mean, imagine having to admit that. So he says, at the age of five, he says, I got taken off my mum. He says, because of what she was doing, and put into care. From the age of five to 12, he were in care. And he was both physically and sexually abused. So what they used to do, they used to come to his room and play him with alcohol at the age of five. 
drink to sort of soften him up and then what well, and I went off. And by the age of 10, 11, it got a taste for this alcohol. So it became an alcoholic. At 12, it got his mum had stopped being a prostitute, so he got taken back to his mum and put in her care. She soon realised Paul had got a drink problem. So she says to him, Paul, you're gonna to have to stop with this drink here, try this. His own mother introduced him to heroin and crack again. I mean, I challenge anybody who's had a start like that in life to, to come out of yeah. it okay. And, and that's not an isolated case, it's far from it. That's 30% of oh, people that we deal with. It, it, similar yeah. stories, very similar But stories. then you look back about well, it, some of that's like Paul <coughs> as an example, but what about Leon? Yeah. Who had the oh, mental health problems. Yeah. You know, mental health. I mean, it's only recently become a thing, hasn't it? Mm. To be fair, you were either a coper or a non coper back in the day. Now we look a bit further. And yeah. when you look a bit further into Leon's case, <clears throat> his father was one of the most difficult prisoners in the country oh, in yeah. the 80s and 90s. Who mm. used to send him out to commit crime. And if he didn't come back with goods, he used to cut him. Yeah. I mean, resistance can be a long journey for yeah. people like that. It can sometimes drive one time, two or three times. Might take six, seven, eight, nine, yeah. ten attempts before they finally crack it. Yeah. But without anybody giving the opportunity, it's never going to happen. Now, again, how the hell can you expect anybody that's lived that upbringing to fit into society? How we expect people to fit in because we've been brought up with it, we've been more privileged. <laughs> and we, we saw this, didn't we, and thought, this makes you want to be more involved, actually, because not only are we helping people to move away from crime, but we're actually challenging that stigma around poverty. As I say, there's a, there's a big percentage of people that are, that are linked. They keep coming up with these fancy reports from Oxford and Cambridge saying, we've got a 500-page document here which suggests... Yeah. That there's a link between poverty and crime, and I think, <laughs> what? That's Are they taking the Michael out of me? <laughs> We're not These mad. people that have got PhDs and they're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on reports that's obvious to anybody with one brain cell. Yeah. By the way, we're not soft on crime either. Right. After saying all what we yeah. said. So I, I'm a big believer that people in yeah, this is a really important point. Who need to stay there, yeah. you know, and they've done some horrendous crimes. And that's the best place for them. Because I, I, I still believe that the majority of people um, think that, you know, carrot and stick is a way to, to work in most environments. And we don't work, we have to keep it realistic for the employer. So we have sort of said, well, well, what sort of offenders would we employ and give a chance to? Well, we wouldn't give chances to sex offenders, for example. And I don't apologise for this. This is the, this is a model we've built that's clearly working. Yeah. Eight years proof of concept. And these are some of the key decisions we made early doors. We don't work with murderers. We don't work with offences of terrorism or arson. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. One is why not experts in those fields? Certainly sex offenders, it's a, a mental health thing. And why not experienced enough or skilled enough to be able to safely Place them into people's companies. Amsterdam employers have expressed. Well, that's right. That's not wish. We, are, we survey every year. Yeah. Would you consider working with these types of people? 
he, he put anonymous because everybody's frightened to death. They've been labelled as non-inclusive and, you know, oh, my goodness. Oh, we yeah. We've been accused of that. We're very, very... Yeah. We take that headache away from the employer. Yeah. Even some of our staffle challenges, which is good. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I come into this to help everybody. Well, unfortunately, that's what we do. We have a business model that works for the majority. Because... There's a saying, isn't there? You can't please all of the people all of the time. Simple saying, yeah. back to life. Those, those offences, by the way, are only a tiny amount to the people in prison. Oh, absolutely. Only 5%, 10% maximum. So we thought, well, if, if we give people who, who are deemed really high-risk opportunities and who could potentially be a bad publicity story for them, can you imagine that? Who the hell are we to be giving a business a, a bad... Uh, reputation, you know, that was the other thing. We looked ourselves in the mirror and said, no, our job is to protect their reputation. They've been good enough to step out of the norm and give someone a chance. So even if that person was a first-time offender, they've got the same barrier to work as a repeat offender. It's not the offender, it's not the um, amount of offending they've done that stops them getting to work. It's just the conviction. Use that one. Any conviction. Yeah. I want to sort of take you back to that when you're talking about their backgrounds, the offenders' backgrounds, because I've got a really, really close friend who's in the prison service. He works at Wakefield. So I rang him up to tell him about you guys and that you were coming in. Yeah. And of course, he was quite suspicious, like you said. You know, I think people in the prison service are a bit suspicious. They learn to be a bit suspicious. It's a world that you're taught to be suspicious. Yes, yeah. So he said, why are they doing it? That was his thing. But also then he said that he's got a friend who's left the prison service to set up um, education, like so um, for teenagers, the people who are excluded from school, etc. people with um, poverty, people with mental health problems that have been identified as likely to go into crime. And he is, you know, his sort of thing was, that's where you need to be. So it's interesting to how, how does that fit into what you do and why, why you're at the other end of that? Yeah. And you think that's well, you know, that's the employer's concern, and that's the bit that we felt were missing the job. Mm. It has to be at the end of the journey mm. because if they're going to stick at the job, which is important to Tempest Noble to maintain any level of um, business, then they've got to be the people that have seen the error of the ways, if you like, and are motivated to change. Mm. It's difficult. Um, Young offenders, because I've worked in the young offenders institution, and trust me, you can speak to a thousand of them, and there might be one out of that thousand or two, maybe if you're lucky, who'll think, I don't want this life. Because they all think it's an exciting journey. Yeah. And it's, oh, it's a nice train, it's hip. But if you get an organisation that can catch them yeah. and turn them around, that's the that's where to do it. I mean, yeah. But it, it, it's difficult, it's really, really difficult. Don't forget, we set this up off the back of 60 years' experience and a hell of a lot of research. Yeah. And it was that's where the gap was. There's always been education and training there since day dot. Yeah. You know, and some are a bit better than others. There'd never ever been a Tempest Nova. No. Nothing like this in the world. And do you know why? Because there's loads of money for education. That's why people set up what you've just said about it. It's easier to set up. It's easy to set up a charity or whatever. 
education, yeah, there's lots, tons of money. Try and set up a charity and get funded. Because they don't believe that you're going to be able to do it. To change, to actually change people's lives and get into jobs. Because it's never been done. In fact, let me just, to be fair, there's a couple of, James Timpson, and I've got to give him a shout. He's, he's, him and his family have been real trailblazers yeah. in employing ex-offenders. Long before Timpson, no more. This is Timpson. Timpson, yeah. Timpson. Yeah. 20 odd years before. And in fact, I worked with one of his team in Leeds Prison, which were hugely inspirational and contributed to our model, some of the things they did. And I thought they did them really well. But James owns the company. So it's very different when James says something happens. It happens. We've got to broker that with a company. So it's a lot more difficult process. But again, big shout out to him, trailblazer, recognised, I think, probably nationally, certainly, uh, um, with that tag, and rightly so. But I think he's even struggling now because prisons are a very closed environment. Um, and they were taking guys from open prisons. Well, COVID hadn't helped. He's moved, he moved. As a, as a business person does, you have to move with the times. I know he was starting to take guys from prison, from the um, army prison in Colchester. Yeah. But he, he would say quite openly, no, I won't employ anybody under 24. It's not mature enough. No, I won't employ sex offenders because it's too good a risk. Yes, give me a drug dealer because they understand money and want to make money. Fact. Yeah. Fact. Yeah. You know, people laughed, but he's, he's, he's thriving on it. He's got a fantastic business. Yeah. Probably a couple of hundred million pound business. Yeah. It's interesting that idea that, that the the younger ones aren't ready. They haven't really been ground down by the reality of what that life in crime is. And, you know, we, we work in an industry that's very youth oriented. And, you know, again, you didn't come to that conclusion of what you wanted to do until you had that experience that's under right. you. So, you know, it, it's not all about youth. Is it there's something in no. that experience that you couldn't have done that when you were younger? Oh, is that fair? The one thing I'm really, really pleased and proud of is the fact that after 30 years in a such a tough, you don't even realise until you get out of a job how difficult it is, such a tough and negative environment where you're physically rolling around with prisoners almost daily, um, to be able to actually use that experience and put it into something positive is a great feeling. It is. Actually. Great feeling. So I, I thought, same, I thought, well, so all that wasted time, I thought, banging them up, locking, shouting orders, you know, doing all that, I thought, actually, it stood me in good stead for this job now, for what we're doing now. And it's like, and, and this might sound ridiculous, because we're not that way inclined, but we seem to feel as though we've been helped by something. And that might sound a bit crazy, but we've had some help sometimes, for instance, we, we, we wanted some legal help and we, we needed some advice. And on the way home from London, we'd been on a trip doing a talk or whatever. And on his way home, we were desperate for something. And a barrister rang us and said, I'm, I've just been looking at your charity and I think it's amazing. Anything we can. And I said, I can't believe this. That's just one thing. Well, so there's so many things happened. There's been loads of things that. And well, I think it's when you're doing like good. Kate, well, yeah. Exactly, yeah. we got invited here about four or five years ago on the beginning of our journey. And a couple of ex-screws, if you like, who are scratching around trying to make something work, um, suddenly get invited to a really good 
marketing agency. And we felt hugely privileged to even be here. And then we were told, well, do you know what? I think the work you are doing is so inspirational. We're making a book up of like leaders regionally and we want you to feature in it. And you, you start pinching yourself a bit initially. But then there is a part that you think, you know what, that's absolutely right, actually. Because you have to be confident, don't you, to, be, mm. to move anything forward. You have to have a level of confidence. Hopefully it never transpires into arrogance, but you've certainly got to have confidence. And by coming and being placed on a pedestal, if you like, as we were, at Wrapped, with sort of some really, really um, successful business people, that were huge yeah, inspirations to us. And that, that were a stepping stone, without doubt, that gave us a, a, sort of a leg up to the next ladder. More confidence and everything, yeah. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Well, it's a fact. And we say it regular, Valonite. Because yeah. everybody gets busy in the day jobs, don't they? And you think, well, we need to go and see Kate at uh, Rat. Um, we have met two or three times since, which is nice, but... Hopefully we don't forget the people that were there for us in the beginning. I mean, I can go back even further than that. When working in the prison, there were a handful of people that knew me. I wouldn't say personally, just professionally, but they knew what we were trying to do was the right thing. And they were there for you at difficult times. And you don't forget that. Well, I <laughs> Oh, no, you were the one pushing to get things moving. But <laughs> yeah. well, I'm thinking of Jan and... Uh, oh, yeah. Even Mark Wilson, no, people, quite a few people, people who you didn't expect sometimes actually, they surprised you. People you'd known years ago, you didn't, you wouldn't have put in that category. And yet they were sort of holding a hand out saying, I know you've been dealt a rough deal, but please keep going because what you're doing is absolutely right mm. for society. We talked about how the prison service has taught you resilience and it's taught you lots of skills, but coming out of that environment that you've been in for most of your career, you know, you were in the mines before that, mm. Robert, most of your career. And then you're starting a business or you're talking to businesses and, um, you know, you're learning to move in that. That's quite a big change, isn't yeah. it? How did, you, how did you navigate that? Well, reading, reading lots of books, in my case, looking at other people that have done it before and listening to them. So hours, hundreds if not thousands of hours of research behind, behind the scenes. Um, and then, yeah, taking learning. advice from people that have been and done it. Yeah, I suppose we may well learning on the go. We had to put a business plan yeah. together. Yeah, which were like, you think, business plan? What, so at least you then you've got a framework. <laughs> yeah. But we always wanted a lot of movement in that framework because things change every day. I suppose we tried to sort of get people, business people on our trustee board and people who we thought could help us with things that we, I mean, it's like you say we haven't got a clue about how to employ people, you know, what it takes, tax, salaries, how do you pay all, you know, there's, there's, the learning curves are so steep. You can do anything you want, you know, in life. Yeah. If the, you put your mind to it, it's a positive mindset. It's no good. If you start off by thinking this is going to be difficult, then of course it's going to be difficult. Yeah. But if you start off by thinking, you know what, I'm going to crack this. I suppose having each other's helped. Oh, massively. Because what, what he Mask can't black, I'll black. <laughs> I can't imagine there's a lot he can't black. No, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, it's like when we did his first speech, we did a speech at uh, Leeds University, and honestly, 
were absolutely quite scared. And, you know, I was physically shaking and I'm thinking, God, there's all these in this like amphitheater they call them. And it were packed. And they're all there wanting to look at what, interested in what you're saying. And they're all educated people. And me and Steve are not that well educated. Are we? out. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, trust me. So, uh, yeah, so it was that. Now I've learnt it. No, exactly. Quite daunting. But, but, well, I wasn't when I came out of the prison service. No. I didn't know the first thing about charities, business, the different no. cultures that you've got to Finance, find out about. Funding. Yeah, fund, how you'd fund a charity. What's... What's in the future? Gosh. Well, well billionaires, if we could tell you that. <laughs> what, what, what we want to do is to be able to provide what we do now to more nationally, people. to more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already opened, we've actually opened an office in Milton Keynes just. And, and surprisingly, that was at the request of John Lewis, which is a fantastic brand. And they've seen what the work we've done with Clipper Logistics. Because we've now placed, I think it's around about 250 people into Clipper Logistics over the past four or five years. And they've won award after award for being inclusive and diverse and they've had investment on the back of working with us and they've won government contracts. John Lewis have seen it and thought, you know what, we want a bit of this. Come and work with us in the, in the Milton Keynes in what we call the Golden Triangle of Logistics. So they've got massive warehouses there, so we've just taken the girl on. They've part funded their salary for us before we even placed anyone. Well, there's another first. Yeah. Businesses paying to tack on people with convictions. I don't think that's happened anywhere in the world. And Clipper have done that for two years now. They've funded us. And that's because they recognise the value they bring to the business, not only in terms of workers, but to their diversity inclusivity policy. So Clipper, very cleverly, Richard Cowles, who's our vice president, very cleverly on our part. And there was a, the chief people officer at Clipper. After 18 months of working with Tempest Nova, he was thinking, and under pressure from his gaffer about Brexit coming up and losing Eastern European labour, he thought, I could actually do this with other marginalised groups from society. So single mums, homeless, ex-forces, mencap. So he reached out to what he thought were the best Charities supporting those different groups. And he formed what he calls Fresh Start. And he said to all his HR teams nationally, this is what we're going to do as a business. I want you to buy into it. And we're going to help people who otherwise wouldn't be helped. And if it means changing the workstations, the shift patterns, whatever it takes, we're going to make it work. Anyway, the senior management team all got quite excited by this. Um, And non-exec directors especially. And as Val says, the bulk, where their anchor partner, which is some I'm proud of, in, t- in Fresh Start. So they've taken, I think they've probably employed somewhere in the region of 1,500 people in three years through Fresh Start, 250 to 300 of them from Tempest Nova. But what they've seen very cleverly, the head of the game is, so ESG, which is like the new CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, mm-hmm. Environment, Social and Governance. I agree with it wholeheartedly because what it's doing is it's holding big businesses to account. Mm. Not saying how many boxes have you ticked this year, you've slung a tenner to a local charity, or you set a member of staff out for half a day. Well, actually, no, what difference have you made to environment? Outcomes. What have you impacted on people's lives? Mm. Uh, We want to see now, there's now measurements around it, which is great. 
and we're taking TN in exactly the same direction. I've just appointed Becky, on him a bit last night, our ESG ambassador. Pinched it off Clipper, thank you, Mr. Clipper. <laughs> they were outstanding as a business um, because it is the future. And why shouldn't you? We always have, we've always worked, haven't we? When you get out of bed on the morning, you get out of bed to make a difference. But how do you evidence that difference? Where's your results? Where's your outcomes? You know, if these, these organizations that are funding us deserve us, our blood, sweat, and tears, they're giving us money to change people's lives is what we're telling them. So that's what we have to do. Now that takes a lot of hard work, but we do it and we've instilled that in our team. The culture within Tempest Nova is very much about, first and foremost, we're changing lives. Um, whatever it takes, really. You can imagine the difference between a service that works nine to five Monday to Friday and a service that works 24 7 pretty much. Which is why we've developed that culture because people's problems are confined to nine to five Monday to Friday. Loads of USPs in TN. Some of them you can't write them into a contract, it's just people's passion. You know, we, we give back in other ways. Our staff will tell you it's the best job they've ever had in their lives. Some of them are in the mid to late 50s worked in lots of different areas. And, and that's, that's one of the things that we benchmark our sellers on. You know, if our staff are excited about coming to work, being looked after by us in every possible way we can, um, and staying with us, then we've got to question our own abilities. Yeah, I think the secret of what we do is the, the sort of is the, is the support, the 12 month support. So it's not just about putting people into, throwing them into a job and saying, there you go, there's a job. Because it's, it's not as simple as that. They need support, these people. So a lot of them have never had a job. They don't even know what's expected of them to, to go out to work. They don't right. know, if they turn up late for work, they think it's okay. But no, actually, it didn't. You've got to be there at a certain time. <laughs> so all these things, it, it, so we always, there's a caseworker appointed to each individual. So anybody we place into it will support them both for minimum of 12 months. It tends to last longer than that. I've got lads ringing me after six years still. Val, I've just passed my drive. All right, cheers, Richard. Val, there's one lad ringing me. He's 62, and he rang me two weeks ago, and he says to me, Val, he says, you know, this is the lot. Now, I've locked him up, and Steve knows him just as well as I know him. And uh, we've locked him up. He was even in the prison before we were. All right, 62 years of age. He says to me, I've just spent my second year out of prison. He said, it's the longest time I've ever spent out of He's 62 years old. He says, I love you, well. I said, all right. He said, not in a sexual way. <laughs> I said, no, I said, it's a bloody better not be as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but he's a lovely bloke. And, and when I sort of put him to team, because he's well known in Army Prison, they're all going, put up Bungle, his name, his nickname's Bungle. He looks like that. Thing of, you know, this big six foot six, this big strapping lad. And the team was saying, Are you for real? I said, Listen, give him a chance. Two years now, he's been out of prison. Oh, well, that's the other thing, isn't it? You can't ever beat yourselves up when somebody doesn't quite succeed because you'd never take that next risk. We understand that mm. nothing's 100%. If we get to somewhere, if we can, of course we do, we review our performance quarterly put things in place if, if necessary to improve. We, we hover around 75% of people stay in work six months or more, which is so much better than a normal recruitment agency. And that's one of the reasons we're still here eight years later and, and growing, albeit slowly. So the point I was willing to make was, so the 620 that we've placed into work, 
the fact that we're supporting them and we still keep in touch with them. We know for, we have access to prison systems. So we can I can go on to what they call scene novice, log in, look John Smith up, who's been out 18 months, and I go, no, he's not back in prison, and that's a national search. So if he ends up in uh, Dover or another prison up in wherever, I know for a fact that he's back in prison. And it'll, it highlights it straight away. Of the 620 that we've placed into work, there's only 27 have actually returned to custody, which is staggering. Absolutely. The national stats are that up to 45% return within 12 months and up to 64% return within two years. Ours is 4.6%. Which proves beyond any doubt. John, work works. For the right person at the right time. Yeah. Um, it used to tickle me in the early days when. Because it's amazing, you know, even in charitable world, it's really cutthroat. Competitive. My goodness, I couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. I thought they were all lovely, don't we? Yeah. No, I it was in the sandal brigade. Oh, we're getting each other. But still, I don't We certainly found different, and yeah. I had to learn. But, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that want to help, but they just haven't got the right tools. You know, you keep saying about our 60 years in prison service. You can't quantify that, you know. The fact that we're able to navigate the criminal justice system, one of the most complex systems in the world, yeah. and our staff can, you know, to have access to a prison, to get key access to a prison alone is, is amazing. We're all jockeys. Um, and then to understand that world and the people in that world that have come from that world. There's so many USBs in Tempest Nova. I couldn't list them. No, I mean, we were in, sorry, we were in, um, Spring Hill Prison yesterday, actually. I went down with Kath and uh, Olivia, who's the Milton Keynes, she's the person working in Milton Keynes, to interview six lads. And like I said, there's all these, like an admin person from prison services, a custodial manager, so and to get it all all these, like, So I went straight down, straight away, introduced myself to custodial and mate, as I going, you know. And it, it works so well. I said, I'm an ex-prison ex officer, I did 30 years in service. All right, yeah, straight away. They want to talk to you, they want to know what you've done. Blah, blah, blah. It's a very closed environment. And without that, I can guarantee you, they're looking at you, because I used to do it myself, and thinking, suspiciously, what do these want? Good, these wanting do to good. help people. Yes. <laughs> do gooders, get off, get them off my hand. You know, this is how it is, unfortunately, that's how it is. But that prison experience and having worked there and Oh, most of our stuff about it, that prison experience. I think we've got something like above 100 over years, years, of, over 100 years of experience working in prisons. So it does help such a lot. Same as then, sorry, when you, when we're getting companies on board, we don't obviously just ring them up and say, oh, we're a charity that helps sex offenders. Will you work with us? Um, well, now they come knocking on our doors, actually, because yeah, we've got a good brand and reputation. Yeah. But, but in the early days, what we used to do religiously, and it worked, a tree, was inviting either the CEO or a decision maker, again, cutting out all those layers in time. Katie? Yes. I've had Katie now. And yeah. the most, <laughs> in fact, every single one of them over the years, we haven't had one, when we've come out, they've said, that's not for me, this. Every single one said, how do I help? And we have a process that keeps it realistic. We just, we say, next time you're interviewing, if you just give one of our people an interview, is that it? That's it. That's it. And that's how we sort of built it up, keeping it realistic. But the, the story that's really good in, in this is, while we're taking two or three business people around prison, 
And this happens in a prison. Some snap, you know, you can't sort of uh, fights break out. There's all, there's all sorts of stuff. Can't choreograph things oh, in a prison. Yeah. I, I never even think I'd, I'd choreograph. So I'm going to ask him to tell you this oh, because I, I, say I remember at the time I said, "Bottle that, don't forget it," because I can't believe what's just happened. So I've got a, I've got either two or three business people with me and I'm doing this tour, trying to impress them, you know, you know, take on ex-offenders. So I get something to see you in. And I know Katie, you, I think you want to throw prison anti, and, and it, it's, you know what it's like. So I get some to see him, and there's a lad shouting at the door, right? And obviously you can't see who it is until you open the flap. So it's Val, Val. So I goes over to him, and the businessman stood behind him. So I said, you're still running charity, aren't you, aren't you? So I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got a business card? Yes, so I slid him a bit. And as I'm talking to this lad, lad next door, you'll have to excuse my language here. Because I'm going to say it as it is. I have to edit it. You might have to edit this. We usually have to edit ourselves. You're all fucking same, you lot. He said, you're a bunch of wankers. You do fucking nothing. Blah, and he's going on and on. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck God's sake. You're going to shut up. And I'm blah. So, yeah, so, yeah. And he's, so he's still rattling on and he's at the top of his mind. And he's shouting to these businesses. And they're all saying, you know, he says, they promise you the year. They're not delivering. Blah, blah. Which is actually true. Which is Which is true. Yeah. So I'm getting really wound up. So I finish with this letter. Like, See you later, mate. Gives him a business card. Goes himself. Whips his block on. Now imagine. Let me just come in there. Imagine. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that imagine that that had been somebody who wasn't familiar with prisoners. Prisoners. They just wouldn't have done what Val did next. Yeah. yeah. So I just whips his flap flap on. I said, right. I said, what is your problem? You what he said. I've heard you talking to him next to her, you know, and I go, anyway, what he did. Promising I think I ain't got my shirt done, but we've got shirts with his logo, see he's got it. With his logo on, and he must have just seen my logo, and he said, and he stopped, and he went, oh, he said, are you Tempest Nova? I said, yes, I'm trying to tell you if you'd let me give me a chance to, and he looked over my shoulder, he said, I take all back what I've just said. He said, these actually help you. I thought, oh my goodness. I thought, never forget that. I never thought I couldn't believe it. I thought I couldn't do it. Better. It only cost us 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, but That's to be honest, we've spotted, and it's Steve Sellers, me. I've spotted thousands of lives. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Yeah, that's right. Tell them why. But don't leave people hanging dry. There's loads of lads who get to a stage in their life. And it all comes at different, it's usually mid-thirties. And there's a, there's a, my a light bulb moment comes on, they have an event in their life, they lose a mum while they're in prison, or they have a birth of a child, and they think, my God, I've just spent the last 12, 15 years of my life. Like Pete, like Bungle, I've just told you about, mm-hmm. he actually said to Kathy's caseworker, Kath, I've just realised I've wasted my life. And she says to him, do you want me honest answer, Peter? Yeah, you have. You know, and that's a fact. And this is what happens with them. But there's never been anything there for them. Correct. Never. And that's why we set up Tempest Novel, to be honest, because we'd seen all these lads wanting to change lives. And there's never... Prison service always won BTE together, education, training, employment. They took a bit on education, a bit on training, but employment, nobody touches it. They're just, they're just starting now. And again, this is off the back of Tempest Novel. Yeah. So the Deputy Prime Minister came to see us about three weeks ago. Just drop that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let the name drop him, Mr. Yeah. Rab. <laughs> but he didn't bring a suitcase of money, as I'd said, no. as I told him to. And 
it's interesting because it, it, it were coming to see Tampa's Nova and what we're up to. So we chose the prison that they were going to come. So to see us, and it was Hatfield Prison in South Yorkshire. So the governor there is incredible. In his own words, I'm a winner, and he is a winner. He's a competitive man, and we add huge value to his prison because we send lots of his men out to good jobs and stick at it. And then we also maintain those jobs when they get released, which is one thing that they've brought in that governors are going to be measured on. But uh, Mick Mills is, is a different kettle of fish. This is the other thing. When you say, well, we want to be in 10 prisons, you know, you ask the question, where do you see yourselves? Well, in the ideal world, of course, we would we'd be in every prison. But we know that A, there isn't going to be funding, and B, there aren't the right people. Because no. everything's about people. It doesn't matter what it's in, it all boils down to people. If the people that you're working with don't want it to work, then mm. you're going to struggle. So why push against a shut door when next prison is a governor who actually sees that this is what he wants to do? So, that, so I always say to our team, don't get frustrated. We've got to remain focused because there's only so long you can break that against a brick wall or you become disillusioned. Mm -hmm. So for all those 100 and odd prisons and maybe a dozen of those are what we call category D open prisons where realistically they can work with us. There's maybe only three or four of those 12 because of the governors that are in post yeah. that can make it work really well. The other, the other, sorry, the other prisons are cat A's, cat B's, cat C's. And to be honest, there's better. Well, that's where education training is. That's where they're doing important, basically. And, and, and nothing's done yet by Interesting, it's a fact. But, but, but Mr. Rago came up to see us. Fair play to him. When he went back to Westminster, one of the things that were raised by Tony Mannix, the CEO of Clipper, who we invited, mm -hmm. was why can't prisoners do apprenticeships? As so, a big company, prisoners. as a big company, we pay a lot of money into the apprenticeship levy, but we can't get access in logistics, to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he said, right, that's an excellent. Anyway, it's changed the Yes. He says, prisoners from open prisons will be able to do apprenticeships as from 2025, whatever it is. So again, we had a hand in that. Yeah. He also, because he, he can see that the job is the key to reducing reoffending. He's even stated it yeah. towards it, you know, in a, in a letter he sent us last week. And um, so what he's done is appointed, but he's made a mistake, sorry. Yeah. He's appointed 91, what we call employment liaison officers, one at each prison. Um, which is great. On paper, that looks like, oh, that's job done. Yeah. But in reality, that one person is going to achieve diddly squat. And I know that because I, I did it for Leeds Prison myself. I know all the obstacles that they're going to face. Um, so what it would have been better doing, and we've got people in Westminster that are talking to them about it, actually. That three million quid that he injected into rehabilitation budget, should have given it to Tempest Nova. <laughs> and that ain't been selfish. That's just been practical, realistic. Hopeful for society for change. We'd have got, we'd have, we'd have definitely it's not going in our pocket. No, we'd have definitely got going to change lives. They, they, they will take, I'll say, at least twelve months to settle into the job. Yeah. Right. Which time I moved on. And funding might have vanished then after that first year, so it, it might not happen again. So if there, if we'd have got that money, we could have set up offices in Manchester, one in London. The culture know. is a big thing, isn't it? And the culture between third sector, private sector, and civil service, if you like, or like oil and water, 
Now we've taken time in the earliest part of our journey to understand all those different cultures and be able to work with them. Prison service will never do that in a month of Sundays. And that's the first step you've got to take, actually. You've got to understand the world of the people you're working with and give them what they need, first and foremost. And that's what we're good at. You know, our team know that if there's an issue with the company, it gets dealt with yesterday. Not today or tomorrow, yesterday, pretty much. That's the attitude we have. And that's why, again, we're succeeding with businesses because let's, we know from a prison service value, First of all, you're lucky if you see an email in your inbox within the first five hours. Secondly, you're probably coming up to your shift finishing and you're going to be day off. Mm. So at best, it's going to be about eight hours before that email even gets answered. Now businesses can't work like that. And Steve, you know as well as I do, that the people who get these jobs are usually yes-men and they will not well, they need to do a job. The seat of the job. That's it. James Lives. So they all that as long as they can get there at a similar morning and leave at four mm-hmm. o'clock and earn a bit more money, then that's all they're bothered about. They're not really that bothered about civil service is a very um, they're just not. It's a very safe place to be. And I say that because mm-hmm. I did yeah. it for thirty years. It's it's the zero risk. If you're off sick, you get paid, mm-hmm. etc. You get a pension. Yeah, you get a decent pension. There's, there's no real um, sort of management of people, mm. if you like. And that's no disrespect. That's because it's a massive, massive machine. So you talked about that £3 million that um, Dominic Raab mentioned. So where do you get your money? Where do you get your funding from? Well, it's from, we have to apply for the money from Foundation Trusts and most of our money comes from that. We've already mentioned that a couple of the organisations employees who work with now are now contributing, which is fantastic news and it's probably unheard of. Uh, but we haven't received one penny from the government, which is really surprising. So funding is always a constant problem. And, and all, we're never going to get rich out of this. It is a charity that we run. And all we need is more funding to be able to help more people. And that's, that's what we're all about. Yeah, we, we, the money is available for rehabilitation from the government, but we're not a big enough organisation to be able to apply for it. It's usually it's usually limited to probably half a dozen big players. Yeah. G4 companies that can that are set up with the right structure. And I do understand why. Don't get me wrong. You know, if you're giving out tens of millions of pounds, you need to jump to a lot of bloody hoops before you get that money. I get that. But they need to think a bit different now as well. Well, what everybody's they... saying this. Lloyd's Foundation, they did a report recently about um, small but vital charities. What lots the... of voices out there that get it. What the big organisations do, they'll get this 10 million and they'll sort of cream off what they want. And then they just offer sort of scraps. They, they scraps of money, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it, there's no quality involved. So we couldn't do, for instance, it costs us. If we might as well stick this out there, three and a half thousand pounds to change someone to change life. someone's life for the long term. Now that might sound a lot of money to some people, but I think it's really, really cheap compared to the cost we've just already explained to you. Three and a half thousand pounds will we can place that person into a job and support them and their employer for the next twelve months, and that is life changing. And I know I'd want to put my three and a half grand. If it was 75% chance of somebody sticking in your job and changing their lives, or 
he could put 1,500 quid into a scheme where there's 99% of it failing. I know where I want to put my money because that's comparison really between us and such as probation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, moving forward, obviously we need funding and we, we've got it costed out as a business model. So it does work and it can, and it can, and it can grow with, with the right side. Change our lives. Yeah. I think that's really interesting is to what clearly what's in your future is helping more people having more stories like the ones that you've told us but also it sounds like you know if, if Dominic Rath's just casually dropping in to see you mm-hmm. you're going to carry on trying to influence yes. that whole systemic oh, yes. change policy yeah, yeah. So, so true and, that, and we will grow because people like success uh, we get plenty of it not just because of Balanai yes it was our, our idea it's our model but we've got an incredible team that that have stepped into our shoes and now do what we did daily. And we're out, and that same thing is going to be happening in Milton Keynes. Mm. And when you can re- when you can keep your focus on the, the changing lives bit, that's it. And when you when you can get the businesses to understand that this isn't just a recruitment um, agency. This is actually changing the world. Which are words that Sir Ian Duncan Smith, bit of another name's up there. <laughs> so Serena Duncan Smith came and spoke at our event at Rugby yeah. Park in September of last year when we had a celebratory evening for lots of the guys that we've assisted into work. We gave them a nice plaque and a round of applause and they all got dressed up. But one looked said to me, this is, I think, last time I had a suit on, we were a judge. It's a long time ago. <laughs> but we, yeah, that we, doesn't always happen. No, so we celebrated that. And Serena Duncan Smith, we've got a short video and it's a bit embarrassing I'm honest, because it's, it's all about Stephen about Stephen about you know what you've done, what you've done. And it's like, oh hang on, it's not just us. But anyway, it is what it is. And he actually says at the end, and what you're doing is so powerful because you're changing the world one life at a time. And it's like they're the, I'm nearly in tears. No. I don't mind telling you. No, Watching like that's almost like a pinnacle, isn't it? You know, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, mm-hmm. whatever you think of him. Personally, that guy has achieved the song top status right, in society. His wife actually to the big said, his wife actually said to us after she said it prepared a speech and us, but halfway through the speech he just turned it over. And that's when he came out with that. He said, when you when he says you're changing the world by changing one life at a time. And it's so it was so profound that word. Well, I, I even felt like the Martin Luther King model. Yeah, unbelievable. But he he and wasn't there by a stat line. Yeah, we didn't. He wasn't there by accident. Yeah. Sir Ian actually set up the Centre for Social Justice. Yeah, did. Where I read that report, lots of potential. So what Val and I did then, we started networking in London amongst the Centre for Social Justice. Yeah. Telling them what we were doing, how we ought to achieve it. They were set up to actually be a voice for small charities in Westminster. So you're speaking to people who have got the ear of people like Sir Ian. And then Naturally, we came across his. Uh, we came across him at some events. We actually won their award in 2019, which is the equivalent of an Oscar in the charitable sector. So it's like, where do you go from here for awards, anyway? Yeah. And, well, you uh, you yeah. definitely need to write a book. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously, we're putting a lot of humour about our time when we were working in prison service. I mean, I can tell you some, some very dark moments as well. Some, yeah, some really. Oh, horrible, horrendous things that you witness. 
what you're going to witness. You know, all these things I think are sent to test you yeah. and to help you. Can't because resilience is probably, I think, one of the strongest skills that we've brought out of prison service. I mean, day to day, you're obviously faced with so many barriers. Some are small, some are medium, some are large. And you've got to find a way of getting over these barriers and just don't let, just don't let anybody or anything stop you. And we talked about some of the big name politicians that you've been rubbing shoulders with. <laughs> uh, give us a few more name dropping, because I, I hear that you've, you know, you're more in touch with celebrities and all sorts of things. Well, and what do they do? Well, the, the, so there's Lenny Henry, there's Professor Green, and there's Andy McNabb. There's three fantastic people that we've met, and I, we were blown away. Actually, we'll, we'll start with Professor Green, because this is really strange. Because I'm expecting, I just hear this story, oh, Professor Green's coming to see us. Oh, that's what I thought. I'm thinking, oh, which university is he coming from? Then? This is me, because I didn't know him. This is, I'll be honest with you. And then you didn't really, did you? So, no, I'm prepared to, um, I'll I'll admit, to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> so we sat in our office waiting for this Professor Green to come. <laughs> so in walks this young bloke, tattoos all over his neck. He says, hi, I'm Stephen. I says, hi, I'm Ned. I says, yeah. Oh, I was cameraman or something. Yeah, I thought, so where's <laughs> Professor Green? And he says, that's me. I says, I'm thinking, I'm waiting for this bloke coming in with air stuck all over, you know, I'm some mad professor. And it's this bloke. This, and anyway, so we hadn't done his own work on him properly, you know. It was just at, at all. At all, yeah. Anyway, he come and he spent, what, three days with us filming? And as one of the things what happened, I didn't realise until, so we went outside, he wanted to do some filming, show the prison in the background. And as I'm up the top of the stairs with him, there's this young girl coming to visit somebody in prison bit looks at her. And she's like, <laughs> it's, are you Professor Green? Oh, she was like, she, she's like, she knew who he was. And I thought, oh, it, must, it must be quite well known, this guy then. So yes, yeah, so that's the story of Professor Green, and so we spent three days filming with him. And then we spent a full day with. Uh, he asked to come and see us because he was doing some research about a, uh, some play or something he was going to be doing on TV, and he wanted to find out about well, what the type of prison. Yeah, the real prisons. And so we took him. We took him inside the prison. I took him for a tour, like I've done, like I've taken cages out. An employer, took nice. him to yeah, uh, and and he spent the whole day with us. Lovely block. Um, and we've got local celebrities that uh, are big fans. So we've got Jane, Jamie Jones Buchanan, who's rugby. Rugby. Rhinos, Josh. Rhinos, Josh Warrington. That is an ambassador for us. Andy McNabb actually asked to me, just now, this is really interesting. Through a policeman, uh, this, this, Andy McNabb will go into this big new central well, police station in Leeds. Can you tell, tell them who Andy McNabb is? Well, well, most people will know. No, these three don't. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Andy McNabb is an ex-SAS. He's wrote loads of books. He's done films. He now lives in Hollywood and he uh, advises filmmakers on action scenes all about, you know, army and stuff like that. So... And he's, he's one of my heroes, if I'm honest. Oh. I, 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 you know, when I first met him, I thought, wow. Anyway, he asked to me, does so. I we get someone in here. So we got invited down to the big new central police station in Leeds. And it, there were hundreds of coppers, hundreds of them. And he'd been giving this talk. And then they were all queuing up around this, you know, all the way around the room for his book. And he's doing a book signing thing. So we got took to a room. And then he got brought to me and Steve. 
because he'd asked to meet us. And his story is he was abandoned as a child, as a baby, yeah, on the doorsteps in a carrier bag of a, I think it was Charing Cross Hospital in London. So he got brought up in the care system. We've already told you what happens in care system, and, and it, it, I dare say it happened to him because for all his life he was spent in there. At the age of 16, 17-ish, he did, went and did some crime, got put in Borstal, and it usually, I think it was about an 18-month thing he did in Borstal. The army came into the Borstal while they were doing this time and said to him, does any of you lads fancy getting out of this place today? They must have had special permission to do this. And he goes, yes, me. Sign here, 22 year. And he got out and they took him and obviously that's that's been his career. He spent, I think he spent about like 13 years in SAS, which is unheard of. Because they only use the last four to eight years or something. They either get killed or they get sectioned off of things that they do and things they say. So and did it, he serve with these other guys then that have been on TV doing SAS? Program? I don't know if they were same era, but probably some of, some of them. Got them. Time. Yeah, probably, yeah. But what a lovely bloke. Cockney lad, really, really nice bloke. And and he, and he just loved what we do. Because yeah. of his because of his story. Well, that's right. People, it's a fact, isn't it, that if something resonates with you, we are personally, you're mm. going to want to be more involved with it. If an employer is listening to this and wants to help you to help change those lives, what do they need to do? Well, interestingly, what I'd say to any employers is getting the cue. <laughs> Prove yeah. that you are ethical and that you want to change um, people's lives. Uh, and, and obviously, we'll, we'll speak to you because. Yeah, just get in touch. It's, it's as simple as that. It's a no brainer for everybody involved. Through our website, I can contact us through our website uh, and we'll, we'll get straight back to them. What they're also interested in is the savings to the economy. It's £45,000 to keep somebody in prison for a year. So that's a huge saving. It's cost. The last calculation was 2018, and it was that reoffending in the UK costs the Treasury £18.1 billion pounds per annum. So, when you think not only are you changing lives, reducing crime, less victims, but the savings are staggering. Well, if, if you work out, so we, we've placed 620, 27 have gone back to prison within that period, that two year period. So, if you work out 590, whatever it is, times 45,000 times two because they've been out more than two years. Mm -hmm. That comes to a Tens of millions of pounds. That's just, and that's just prison costs alone. That's not taken into account. Oh, Court sure. costs, which are, you can nearly double that. Healthcare, Healthcare. all impacts. And then they actually be, become, uh, they actually now start paying tax and contributors to, you know, Absolutely. to the system. Yeah. And it, uh, the reality is that we live in a system where, you know, those people in government are whatever are going to be swayed by those facts and figures yeah. and the, the economy and all that kind of thing. But there is also a point that you, you're measuring things that are not measurable in money. Yeah, you're right. Measuring things in terms of generational change. Yeah. yeah. You know, we yeah. can't see sat here now uh, very well. So, you know, four generations on. Yeah. And now those people have probably gone from entry-level jobs to management, you know. So they get impact. Well, then their children yeah. now, instead of having to visit dad in prison, I see him get up to work every day. Yeah. So then, so that that chain of nobody's had a job in this family. Mm. Now this person asks us, we've helped him. So his kids will 
grow up and think that's what we do. You get, you know, you get a job and you go to work every morning. I actually see this as a privilege to do this work. Mm. I'll be honest with you. That's so rewarding. I just think the first 70 people that were placed into work mm. had between them over a thousand convictions. Yeah. Fact. That's how true. That was police national computer information. Yeah. That one, their word, it wasn't us taking it from precons. That's a piece of work that the police did for us. And then you start to think, wow, we can have a huge impact here. Not working with, and it's never been about quantity anyway. What no. we do is about quality and purpose. That's what's at the heart of what, and that's why we've been successful again, because we, we genuinely care. It runs through us veins, you know, the fact that we, uh, yeah, we will operate as a business because you've got to do it in, in all different ways. And, and we don't mind the fact that we exclude certain offence types because it keeps it real and workable. But the impact we're having is just, if we, we could do a piece of work now and say, well, okay, first 70 were a, a thousand, we can use that as an average. So now we've got 620, so that'd be X thousand. If you keep them all out of prison for one year, that's X savings. I tell you, the numbers would just be ridiculous. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real inspiration and privilege. It's ours to have you spend some time with us today and, and listen to those stories. I can't wait to listen or read or whatever we're going to do to more stories in the future. And I think that idea that you're thinking outside that system and beyond that system, you know, up against people who are saying to you, it's not going to change. Yeah. That's not going to change. I can't change that. And the fact that you have faith in people despite okay. years in that environment not being ground down by it you know it's something that i think we all need we all need it in all our industries not that most of them are as, as tough as the background that you've been but for the environment as well for all yeah. sorts of things that we think we can't change and, and oh, yeah. thank you because oh, what yeah. you bring is that thank spirit you. thank you all for inviting us it's a powerful thing when you do believe in someone who's never been believed in yeah. and you probably realize now that can't ever show Steve.